0: Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Today, I'm joined once again by my good friend, Dale Stenberg, and we have the the fun privilege of interviewing our friend, Derek Peterson. Who uh, has been on the program before? Uh, I interviewed Derek last year before Dale was on the mm-hmm. program about a book that was then forthcoming, Flat Earths and Fake Footnotes. Uh, and this is the uh, this is the uh, uh, I guess the uh, suffering before glory. This is the post uh, this is the post glory uh, uh, interview about Flat Earths yes. and Fake Footnotes, which if you're seeing the video is right here. Uh, a good uh, a good size volume published by Cascade lots of footnotes, lots of uh, uh, smashing endorsements on the back. Uh, And it's a work so full of of, of insight, of, uh, of consolidating a veritable catalog of historiography uh, for ordinary people, and so there's there's more than one interview in this book, and so I want to juice I want to juice Derek for uh, as many as I can get actually out of this particular volume. Uh, the the way I advertised it last go round, I'll mention again is that, you know, I uh, for for those of you who heard the program, I might have mentioned that uh, I did a PhD program in the humanities. Uh, uh, and I did a lot of uh, sort of faith and science courses that was part of my part of my coursework. Uh, and so I was able to read a lot of the the kind of up to date, cutting edge historiographical scholarship on these questions, and I can assure you that what you have in Derek Peterson's book is sort of the cutting edge of cutting edge uh, mm. consolidation of scholarship and many pieces of scholarship that aren't ordinarily put in conversation with one another. So there is there is a uh, there is thirty thousand dollars worth of knowledge uh, in this book uh, between two covers. Similar, I think. Um, in fact, I just wrote a review for this book for Evangelical Quarterly uh, that I just sent off this morning. Uh, yeah, and one of the ways I described it is he, uh, Derek is doing, I think, for science and religion historiography, what somebody like Michael Heiser is doing for biblical studies, which is, oh, wow. you know, taking all of that scholarship and putting it between two volumes. And I think, yeah, I think it's a remarkable book. So Derek, we're happy to have you and to talk about this. <laughs> it's yes, a, this is a exactly. great book.
1: Yeah. I'm happy to be here and, and receive that that praise. Thank you that's uh, it's really humbling to hear all of that. Thank you. Oh yeah
2: you know I was uh, we were talking beforehand and um, I want to reiterate it because I want to give my hearty endorsement to the book uh, really sort of like as a pedagogical tool. So um, people that listen to the podcast will know I'm starting a school in Melbourne Florida, classical Christian school and picking out the science curriculum was one of the more difficult uh, pieces of responsibility. And so while I have all of this curriculum floating around in my brain, putting together lesson plans, how are you going to present this? How are you going to teach it to little minds? Uh, your book was very timely in terms of God's providence on when I was going to read it. Uh, and you were, literally Morpheus holding out the red pill going, come find, <laughs> come down the rabbit hole with me. Yeah, uh, And it's a, cl- it was so clarifying. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is that even in some uh, so before, I guess we could set it up like this. The thesis of the book is that there is a war that has been uh, superficially artificially constructed between uh, science and religion. If you say I'm a religious person, it must mean that you don't like science very much. And if you say I believe in science, it must mean that you don't believe in a God. Uh, and the way that we tell the history of how science is developed um, is really uh, it's it, you're 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 catching it more than you're being taught it. You're sort of catching the the, the scent That's blowing around in the contemporary winds rather than having a full sort of robust historiography of the development of science. And that has actually gotten into even Christian uh, curriculum and how we teach it in our schools. Uh, So maybe before we get going, you could remark a little bit on why that phenomenon is sort of still at play on our end. Uh, why we still continue the narrative that science and religion are, are sort of like um, in friction with one another rather than harmony.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's kind of the million dollar question. I think, Um, you know, we could spend our entire hour just unpacking that. Um, I think uh, to be as brief as possible. And I, I always rabbit trail so I'll do my best to kind of stay on track here Uh, before the conversation got started. Um, we were talking a bit about Francis Schaeffer, and uh, you know he did he did a lot of great work. He was obviously instrumental in a lot of the uh, reformed uh, culture that happened in America. And uh, but one of the interesting things is that uh, all, all of his good work aside, he actually takes some views of the Dark Ages and uh, say the Renaissance as a turn towards man and away from God, um, which were originally. Sort of storytelling devices uh, by people like Jacob Burckhardt, who was actually um, the one who coined the term Renaissance. Well, Jules Michelet and him were both uh, party to that. But this idea that the turn to man was a glorification and that humanism was essentially anti-God was taken up by people like Francis Schaeffer, you know. And, and unfortunately, it's really kind of bent our view of history because there's a, a really glorious Christian humanism tradition, not just Erasmus, but, you know, far and wide that really kind of got stepped on um, by a lot of people just automatically assuming that any type of turn to man is automatically, you know, an idolatry and a turn away from God. Um, So that's, that's one small possibility of why it still persists. I think part of it, too, is just it's so deeply ingrained with us you know, as Americans, so we really need to qualify, you know, this discussion is a very American discussion in a lot of ways, global Mm. and local to like Australia and others in other ways too. But, um, you know, I think that with the fundamentalist and modernist controversies and the perception, uh, even if not the reality of losing control of America for Christianity, I think really made it quite easy to imbibe Mm. a narrative of opposition of us losing, of us being against this this you know unknowable they that was kind of out to get us. Um, mm. And as, as we'll probably talk about, you know, the the all all the best lies are, are half truths, right? And so there's actually there's actually a good deal of truth of how secularism sort of altered school curricula, altered university curricula, and uh, modified public perception about religion. Especially using science as sort of a vehicle to append an entire worldview upon um and so a lot of the fear mongering here is is unfortunate and exaggerated and unnecessarily oppositional, but it's I think at the end of the day it's fueled by a lot of truths that are are um you know not often examined, and so it's right. kind of that half truth that gets us into this state so
0: yeah I think the the point you just made is is fascinating that there's a way in which, or at least implied in what you said, is there's a way in which we've internalized, and I think this is really coming off of Dale as well, that we've internalized this narrative in more ways than we think we have. Um, uh, Reading the book, uh, in fact, I think it would be difficult for most modern Christians to read the book and not walk away thinking, Uh, even if I don't think of the relationship between Christianity and science in a warfare model, even if that's not my personal model, you know, uh, I, you know, I believe in science, even though I have these views or whatever. Um, Nevertheless, I think a lot of Christians reading a narrative that's like this might walk away saying, oh, Nevertheless, the particular way I approach these issues has been shaped by a culture that that has this model. The con- right. Because the conversation itself has been shaped by that model. And it's yeah. very hard to, I think, get out of those thought patterns in such a way that you're sort of weighing uh, uh, discourses and weighing sides of things the way that even Christians, most Christians 150 years ago would have weighed them. Uh, you know, there, that is to say there's something peculiar about how we have you know, you know, we bring a story, as it were, to all conversations of, of this nature. Uh, and maybe one way of getting at that story, we can, um, we can just maybe walk in a very broad way through, through three parts of the book to give a sort of global narrative. The book is very conveniently broken up into three parts of, um, uh, uh, make sure, deleting theology, the lords of time, and then le- legendarium. Uh, or did I get that word right? Legend, yeah, legendary. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. Whew. <laughs> uh, but uh, starting with deleting theology. So there's three yes. chapters here. But if, as I gather, yeah. the kind of the kind of basic point in deleting theology is to sort of start with where we begin to see. This is before we're developing uh, how we became to think. How we came to think of uh, the, the the warfare model. How that yeah. came into sort of popular consciousness. You start with how we became begin to unthink it uh, in a sense. Um, yeah. So tell us a little bit about this, uh, uh cha- that first chapter is sort of the, the OG of unthinking it, I suppose. You might call him. <laughs> yeah. uh, Pierre, du- uh, uh, Pierre Duhem, uh, Duhem, yeah. how do you say his last name?
1: Uh, I, that's, a, that's about how I say it. I, Duhem. I'm no Okay. expert, so yeah. T- tell us, well. tell
0: us about old Pierre, uh, and yeah. his contribution.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So the first, uh, deleting theology, consists of three chapters um and really overall it's it's looking at some of the rising historical scholarship of the 20th century that began uh deconstructing the presuppositions that went into the warfare thesis and uh one of the spearheads of that was a french physicist turned field, uh turned historian uh pierre duhem who uh was actually writing a book on what's known as static so it's the idea of force on uh playing on physical systems and uh he wanted to kind of go into some of the history of static and, uh, you know, why we, how, how tradition thought about it, how we think about it now.
0: Uh, and,
1: but one of the interesting things that happened is as he delved into this topic, uh, there, the few books on, on the subject that he found um, sort of started their subject in the 16th century as if uh, there was really nothing preceding that, you know, some, some of it would speak of the Greeks, but there would be this, Sudden spontaneous generation of talk about statics, and so he became really curious about, you know, what happened beforehand. Was there was there something was there something that happened before, or was this truly some type of novel, you know, uh, emergence in history? And really, as he went on, it wasn't uh, to much to his surprise. Um, it wasn't just delving into a new area of statics, but he really began uncovering. An entire reorientation to how we even understood things like the scientific revolution, um, because mm-hmm. he found an entirely untapped historical tradition of Christian thinkers um, who sort of paved the way. Now, who are often wrong, but who paved the way with a lot of their investigations, their mathematics, their even empirical, uh, um, you know, lab sort of quasi lab, laboratory type testing. Um, and so what this really this did was it really overturned the idea that there was this long age of darkness where Christians, say forgot Greek wisdom and that, you know, suddenly men like Leonardo da Vinci or Galileo were dragging mm. us out of the dark sort of single handedly um, as these, these geniuses who uh, were, you know, sort of ahead of their time. And uh, these men, uh, these great men, these heroic men that were just kind of dragging us out of the dark here. Um, and so I really, I kind of framed it um, a bit playfully in terms of the Da Vinci Code, because uh, some of his discoveries actually came by way of the publications and the rediscovery of Leonardo da Vinci's lost notebooks. Uh, so very curiously, uh, he sort of saw that Leonardo as, uh, you know, as incredibly intelligent and, and talented as he was. With all of his drawings with all of his scientific musings he was actually very um reliant upon a predecessor culture that went back through say parisian scholasticism and beyond mm. into a gigantic christian culture uh whose scientific theorizing was not just non-repugnant to christian theology but their theology and their metaphysics were very often what grounded uh, the presuppositions and even yes. some of the contents of this scientific investigation. Um, so I thought, so while he isn't in reality, the point of departure, you know, as if we could ever find kind of the patient zero here, I thought it was sort of a, it's kind of a fun, um, fun way of, of showing how scholarship began to change, because he really, through a lot of struggle, became uh, you know, one of the spearheads of this giant sea change that occurred uh, much later on in the 20th century regarding historiography, um, where people more and more began to discover that our presuppositions about how science and Christianity related through history were very interestingly based often upon the faulty methodology that had been used prior to to investigate documents. Um, it was often um, based upon a sort of urban legend type thing of of hearsay of, you know, uh, people who are all kind of reliant upon one another sort of swapping the same stories here and there that were all uh, factually incorrect or skewed in such a manner as to make Christianity look terrible. Um, So yeah, with deleting theology, I while my entire book is really meant as a summary to kind of bring a lot of this scholarship to people who don't otherwise have the time or the patience uh, to kind of <laughs> enter into it, because there is, there is kind of a high uh, cost of entry. Um, but I would say mm. that this is one of the, um, if I can claim any uh, novelty on my part here, I, I would say that uh, what, what I found again and again in all of these different monographs and in all of these different essays was whatever figure or movement or idea was being talked about to those people or movements or ideas specifically, uh, it would be said, look, secular scholarship here, quote unquote, secular scholarship has sort of bracketed out the theological and religious context of the discussion mm-hmm. for, for any given thinker or, or movement or idea. Uh, and that happened again and again. But as far as I could tell, interestingly enough, no scholar... Uh, and probably because it, they're worried about their jobs, and I, I only mean that partially tongue-in-cheek, No scholars really come out to say, look, when we put this together, we actually kind of are putting a collage together of a giant movement that has essentially bracketed theology and religion out of the picture and has turned all of these historical figures into like proto-atheists or proto-skeptics. Right. when In fact, they were thoroughly, you know, thoroughly religious. Um, you know Isaac Mm -hmm. Newton being one of the better examples um, and I you know I used him in my book you know by no means was he an orthodox Christian but his theology was part and parcel of his of what we now call his scientific theorizing but that's been completely cut out of the picture so that those first sections are really kind of asking how 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 the historiography of deleting theology really um, presented these sort of positivist, purely quote unquote, purely scientific pictures that were uh, kind of the fuel that eventually ended up being part of the creation of the myth of the warfare, right? Because we have pure science on one side and pure theology right. on the other. So yeah. yeah, that's the, that's the, I guess the nutshell version of it. No, that's yeah.
2: great. So, so let me ask you, you mentioned genius uh, and you, and you sort of gave us the, the scare quotes of genius when we were talking about like Da Vinci so there's an entire entertainment industry multi hundreds of millions of dollars pour in if you use the name da vinci uh (laughs) you know if you can say your kid will be the next da vinci if you follow this methodology um and we always equate it to genius one of the uh, more fascinating things in that first section that first part that you talk about is how we've turn the term Mm. genius uh into something that's divorced from its historical context and that's largely what you're doing throughout the entire book throughout Mm. the whole book you're basically saying we're adopting these sort of modern day vernacular that we got from uh post renaissance period um Mm. and we're not using them in a way that the people pre that era would have understood so uh, tell us what a genius is to an ancient mind and how yeah. that word has sort of been adopted in the modern world to fight against what it initially meant.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, it's a really interesting story. Uh, and in general, it's, it's, what I'm trying to do in this book is, is like you say, Uh, I'm looking, I'm asking the question, well, what happened, you know, if if there is no warfare thesis, and if theology and religion were actually fairly, you know, intricately involved in the rise of of science, what happened in order to lead us to believe that it was not the case. Um, And very often what happens um, are these sort of equivocations in terminology and concepts that uh, suddenly and not so suddenly through history evolved and change the methodology in such a way that certain things appear and certain things disappear. And genius is one of the uh, really interesting Mm -hmm. examples of this because initially, uh, you know, it's actually related to words like genie or the locus genii, uh, the idea of being inspired by a muse or a God uh, giving inspiration, you know, breathing into someone. Um, That's really how the idea began. You know, Homer opens both the Iliad and the Odyssey, asking for inspiration, asking for the muses to kind Mm. of uh, lead him to tell his story properly. Um, And in general, that was uh, kind of the concept that was associated with it. In fact, even the Christian notion of a guardian angel sort of uh, dovetailed off of this this tradition. And so the idea Mm. is, when we speak of the genius of Homer, or even the genius of Shakespeare, you know, if we found out that these people weren't the authors per se in their persons. With this concept of genius, it wouldn't matter because they would have the same modes of inspiration. You know, They were receiving it from the same source, even if it happened across multiple witnesses or, or whatever. But what really happens in the modern period is uh, genius more and more becomes attached to the creation of the modern subject, uh, like Carl Truman has recently argued in his book. Um, and so genius becomes uh, a search for not just the individual's own ability, but for a novelty that really escapes what came before it. Um, yes. And interestingly enough, it becomes a, a real point of polemic in, w- for the philosophs and in the Enlightenment. And it actually becomes eventually a very anti-Christian piece of methodology because when we call someone like Leonardo da Vinci a genius, this is part of the method that then divorces him from his predecessor culture and, uh, that was theologically saturated and religiously saturated that often led to the ideas that he had, right? Yes. Uh, even things like the ornithopter, which we, you know, we, he, what a man, a man ahead of his time, you know, drawing helicopters in his books. And we actually discover that a man named Eilmer of Malmesbury, a monk, actually created one of the or you know he, he tried to fly by creating wings and turned into a horrible disaster but this is one of the you know lines of of descent that eventually leads to leonardo da vinci um and is you know uh without getting too bogged down on that specific piece in general we can generalize this and say that these categories like genius Often blind us to, um, you know, by the methodology that is attached to it, it often blinds us to the theology. You know, it helps us delete the theological and uh, religious contexts that are going on that were part and parcel of the scientific revolution or whatever. And uh, these things are all over. It's, you know, it's insane once you start looking at it, even something as innocuous as the category of like art you know, uh, the category of art was a secularized category that attempted to take the aesthetic away from, you know, religious experience, and sort of used the sublime and whatnot as a surrogate for religion, you know, so you, you start running into all sorts of things. And it's really interesting, because methodology is not something that's often brought up in how we sort of, uh, you know, orient ourselves to the world at a gut level feeling, but it's really produced you know, these pictures of mm. history um, that are inac- inaccurate and highly, uh, uh, you know, shorn of any theology and religion.
0: Mm. Yeah. Dale and I will be, um, Lord willing, uh, interviewing Drew Johnson on Monday about his Hebraic philosophy, uh, mm. uh, his new, his new f- book on Hebraic philosophy. And one of the claims he makes in there, interestingly, dovetails with what you just said, which is that very often people sort of can't read a lot of the Old Testament as philosophy, because the big distinction they're making is between sort of uh, texts that come from human reason and texts that are inspired. Inspired texts are innately not philosophical texts, but what he turns around and he says what you just said, he says, but... A lot of these Greek philosophical texts that are unambiguous mm-hmm. philosophy, unambiguously philosophy, the authors themselves claim to be inspired by the yeah. gods. Yeah. You know yeah. when they're doing this philosophy, but just like the word genius, interestingly, I'm, I'm thinking, trying to kind of make a yeah. parallel, uh, it's interesting to think about the the history of a word like inspired, uh, because it had mm. there's a way in which it actually has been secularized in that. Uh, it, it, it it's a word that can both mean God quite literally breathing out his word, uh, mm-hmm. but it can also just mean a person having a very strong, specific feeling. Uh, and right, therefore, right. what does it mean that God inspired these people? Well, we can, it can wind up becoming this kind of loose category of sort of like God, uh, God gave some elixir of feelings to a particular person <laughs> that, yeah. that sort of yeah. performed words in a, in a, in a particular way. It, very fascinating though. Well, in, in part two, of course, you then go to build actually build the the, the narrative of what's the origin really yeah. of the of the warfare thesis. At least at least uh, predominantly or institutionally, what is it that right. caused it to spread? Uh, and of course, the, the the bigger name known names there are probably Andrew Dixon White and uh, 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 John William Draper, who of course write these two famous texts that are sort of yeah. like the two paired together texts that that sort of sort of define in a sense the warfare thesis and maybe we can talk about them in a minute but there's another chapter with a group called the x club in it and that is so fun (laughs) that uh you know this sounds like a conspiracy theory but in fact this is these guys are a big deal tell us about the x club and maybe that involves talking about wilberforce for a second but tell us about the x club
1: yeah, yeah. So, um yeah, it's very interesting. Um, the x Club was a group of friends sort of led by Thomas Huxley, who's often known by his moniker uh, Darwin's Bulldog because he was, he was really uh Darwin's advocate, his hype man, you know, he was the aggressive one. Well, Darwin disliked, you know, public appearances and public um uh disputes and so Huxley sort of took care of that for him. Um, but it was really a bunch of of uh, like-minded friends who got together for breakfast and, um, you know, would go for drinks at the pub and whatnot, uh, who really wanted to, uh, rebrand science, uh, as something that didn't have a lot of church oversight that wasn't, you know, under the thumb of, of the clergy. Uh, and this of course involved several Christians. This isn't necessarily like an atheistic anti-Christian movement. Right. Um, But the the nutshell version of it was that they were exceedingly successful at infiltrating uh, universities and changing um, uh, public education system, even below the university level, uh, to present science as, in many ways, uh, a-religious, and in some cases, even anti-religious, with, uh, you know, uh, Thomas Huxley coined the term agnostic uh, for himself, um, in order to, you know, avoid the accusations of atheism. Um, and that's, that's a whole other discussion because agnosticism actually ha- stems from Christian apophaticism. And so they actually were often pro theology still. It was more a, a public statement about professional, uh, science, not needing over, right. you know, clergy acceptance. But one of the things that happens with the X club is they Uh, One of the themes of my book in general is how history has been rewritten, so to speak, in order to create the idea of the absence of theology and the rise of science or uh, the overt, you know, uh, warfare thesis. And um, we today often take uh, any sort of naturalism to be anti-theistic, to be anti-Christian, anti-theological. But the interesting thing is, is that the idea of natural law and the world running its course, you know, without the interference of God, was actually born through theological premises. It's not an idea that really arises outside of these Christian circles that see God as a lawful, uh, you know, an ordered lawgiver who who has uh, let the minds of humans able to understand the universe and has unified it in such a way that these laws will, you know, apply across time and across space. Um, but what the Axe Club does, especially through Thomas Huxley, is it sort of rewrites this theological history so that methodological naturalism and ontological naturalism, where, you know, uh, we explicitly say God doesn't exist, th- those all become the provenance of, of the atheist, you know, so science is suddenly through this rewriting, science has nothing to do with religion, even though it had everything to do with theology. And so often theological premises are then smuggled in. But because of the way that it's rewritten, they, they then appear as, quote unquote, pure science. And so the x Club was extremely successful as a group of, uh, an influential group of friends in how they sort of modified our understanding of scientific history and its relationship to theology. But also they institutionalized it in a way that I think is really without precedent and uh, which we're still feeling the legacy of it today. Um, you know, mm. the idea that science has you know nothing to do with theology is they well frankly they won uh they you know their position yeah. became the default position and uh right. even today our histories tend to not see theology as having anything to do with like laws of nature or the like those are often seen you as talk a, about a the, atheistic the
0: universe the depersonalization of scientific rhetoric mm-hmm. i think is one yeah. of the things you discuss and that's fascinating that at the even at the level of the language we inherit Mm. the 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 personal the the agentic is kind of written out of the language and so you can see how that sort of over time shapes the imagination to associate silence or or, or science with this uh yeah merely kind of neutral objective measuring thing and it it it, it has an aura to it basically yeah Uh, well we see this and of course this is this is breaking down a little bit in our day. I mean, in fact, it's always been a little broken. In fact, one of the, this is yeah. jumping the gun a little bit, but one of the most fascinating things to me about your chapter on flat earthism, this is in the, mm-hmm. the final third section where you're now going from, just for the sake of our our, our listeners, where you're going from sort of deleting theology to hear how the warfare narrative was constructed. Mm. The third part of the book for our listeners is a, is a set of case studies, if you might put it, where you actually yeah. see the, these this conflict play out or not play out. But in the, in the flat earth narrative, one of the things that was very fascinating is what a working class phenomenon it was. Uh, yeah. That it's sort of like it pits... Uh, it was attractive in the early 20th century to a certain group of people because the common man it's the era where the science is sort of being professionalized mm. and there's yeah. this class of sort of professional scientists and then there's the common dummies as it were and flat earthism was yeah. sort of a was sort of a way of a way of saying like no you know the sci- you know these yeah. experts over here don't get to tell us what to think we you know we have two yeah. eyeballs of our own thank you very much and, and it's fascinating to see that we you know we're still in the middle of that kind of rhetoric, uh, mm-hmm. uh, not that that rhetoric, and I'm not in using Flat Earth as an example, I don't mean to suggest that that rhetoric's always wrong. Well, either, w- well but one it, thing. It's a, very thick, it's a very thick, tense, complicated phenomenon, but even in the last mm-hmm. year, uh, you know, you see that this tension over experts yeah. is so fascinating. Uh, you know, Sarah's still very much with us. And a book like Definitely. this puts it in refrain for you. A book like this, like this narrative you know, that we're talking about, we're talking about the X club, it sort of spreads through institutions, the, that yeah. those were the experts, <laughs> right? Yeah. That's right. so a little bit, uh, go ahead, Dale. Yeah, sorry.
2: No, no, I was just going to say what you just said, uh, which is that, yeah, we've watched over, uh, you know, with COVID, um, mm-hmm. there has been this sort of very on the ground visceral reaction against any sort of authority or science you see the memes trust the science and then it has a bunch of contradictory things that science has done and you see this with christians and Mm -hmm. uh so yeah that's why your book is so relevant even though it's really uh his it's a readjust uh readjustment Mm -hmm. of historiography it very it it really caches out in practical ways with what Mm. we're dealing with now Mm. so um i don't i remember joe did you just ask a question because i don't want to
0: no 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 i didn't okay
2: so one of the questions that we might ask is um just as an aside from from away from your thesis and if Mm. you were to say to people right now here's the relation to Christians here's Mm -hmm. the relationship you should have to science in general but also to authority given the fact that we realize that there's this fake narrative has sort of been constructed uh, on fake Mm. footnotes uh, what would you tell the, the layman who, you know, works nine to five, doesn't really read, watches MSNBC or Fox News every night, and they're just trying to orient themselves to the yeah. world in relationship to science, and they go to church on Sundays, they sing the hymns, they're good people, what does that mean for those people? So how, how do we uh, start to, we talked to, about sort of internalizing things at the beginning. How do you internalize a posture towards science that begins to separate all of the ickiness that we've caught? uh in other words so
1: yeah that's a great and question. i don't
2: and i and, and i and i know that that's a big question <laughs> yeah. so don't don't feel the burden to have to answer it all but just like the smallest incremental move
1: yes.
0: just don't be yeah. wrong is all we're saying yeah yeah <laughs>
1: <that's> yeah. <right>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i mean man it's a great question i you know it's something that i wish i had a definitive answer to because uh i think it would solve a lot of a lot of problems um I think one of the, the interesting transitions that happened is that skepticism in the modern period is really elevated as the posture of the intelligent person. And obviously mm-hmm. there's some truth to that. But, you know, Christianity has always, well, always, it, it's, it's emphasized faith, um, you know, in order to understand. And I think our broad orientation has to be, you know, uh, unless I have evidence to the contrary, I, I need to believe in and seek understanding based on on that belief, you know, so an automatic, I don't believe someone because they're an, an elite or because they have an affiliation.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: I'm not necessarily sure that that's the healthiest um, of orientations, you know, obviously, it's not a wholesale, I believe everything they say, uh, you know, taking things with a grain of salt, but you know i I think Aristotle was right that i think I think it's wonder and and not skepticism that's really the heart of of learning um you know, and so I think that if we we hold things uh in the sense of seeking wonder instead of a constant like a skeptical debunking um to me that shifts the attitude a bit, so even when we disagree with someone that's uh that's part of a process of engendering wonder and part of a broader, broader mm-hmm. understanding of the world instead of a, a constant sort of, you know, quasi conspiratorial, you know, they're, they're wrong because of ex affiliation or because of, you know, they're, uh, they're supposedly experts. And so obviously they're part of this cabal that's trying to get us to believe certain things. Um, I mean, that's not, that's not really an answer, right? It, it you know, I think that's ideology in and of itself, but, um, to me, I think, um,
0: I think it's it's part of an answer just to say, like, I I actually, I do think that's part of an answer because it's, it's, uh, uh, because the point is not to, there's no method, there's no formula, I don't think anybody's going to arrive at that tells you when to trust expertise and when not to trust expertise. Right. And so I think what you've identified is, is there's, there's more rather a posture we should cultivate in persons uh, and as persons. Oh, so it looks like for our listeners, it looks yeah, like we we lost lost Dale him. for a second there, but he'll probably be back. Uh, okay. But it, yeah, I think there's more of a, uh, it's more of a, a posture in persons uh, uh, that we're looking for that I think actually does have a lot to do with um, in, in my, in my judgment, I think a lot of it might just be saying, I don't know <laughs> a lot yeah, of the time, I, like yeah, uh, that, yeah. that's, that seems, that seems okay because the, the, what, what I think your book shows is even though the experts can be wrong, the experts might mm-hmm. even have an agenda uh, uh it's not as though everybody simply sort of uh, responding to the experts is then true. <laughs> right. uh, very yeah, often the right. people responding to the experts and criticizing expertise are just as wrong. And in fact, they're yeah. just wronger uh, <laughs> in, in a <laughs> yeah. sense because they're sort of springboarding to some extent off of off of error. How, um, yeah. maybe it is worth very briefly um, going over how Draper and White do fit into the narrative because of course their works are the, uh, yeah kind of the locus classicus of the warfare thesis uh yeah. so what 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 role do they play or what is the hist- what mm-hmm. and what role do they not play maybe that's an interesting thing to ask because i think part of yeah. what these chapters would be would be uh maybe their original motivations aren't exactly what you might suspect they were yeah maybe we talk about that yeah, for a
1: second. yeah, yeah. definitely yes i think that's a good way to uh put it um so, yeah, I really am indebted to a guy named James Ungarianu. I'm butchering his last name. But, yeah, the interesting thing uh, recently is uh, of all there's so much mythology that's really associated with the warfare thesis. And, of course, my book is about debunking some of that. But interestingly enough, part of that myth is the idea that the warfare thesis set out to be a warfare thesis
0: between ah.
1: science and religion. Um, and the basic idea is that both Draper and White, in their own ways, were pro, uh, pro-religion pro and even pro-Christianity. You know, White considered himself a God-fearing Christian, uh, granted more of the liberal variety. Uh, and Draper, you know, believed in God. He was a, a theist of sorts, uh, um, not a Christian necessarily. But both of these men wrote their narratives in the hope of purifying religion, in, in the hopes of... Um, Uh, I suppose demythologizing is a bit anachronistic, but the idea of getting to the core of Christianity, getting to its pure essence so that we can put aside some of these myths and unnecessary dogmatic accretions uh, that have accrued. Uh, And so both in their own way, see themselves in the line of Protestant reformers uh, pushing Mm -hmm. against the legacy of the Catholic church and others who have appended these sort of unnecessary dogmatic beliefs to what is essentially you know a childlike faith or an orientation to the future or what have you um, and that is slightly different between white and draper they have a different styles they have different motives but at the end of the day one of the really intriguing discoveries is that look the warfare thesis itself was not originally born as the warfare thesis as we know it both White and Draper set out to write books that were pro-Christian in their own way and were theological treatises on how science and religion should relate. Um, and the fact that they kind of lambast all of these supposed errors of the church isn't, uh, in the sense of being uh anti-christian full stop but again they both saw themselves as protestant reformers you know so both of them right. in a sense are invoking the shade of luther or 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 what have you in order to produce a purified religion that would ultimately not have any um uh interference or uh any contradiction with the sciences of the day And uh, in, in fact thomas huxley is the same Um, You know, it's really interesting where he has several quotes where he says science and religion are not at odds. And in fact, they can never be at odds. It's really theology and the clergy as a a power structure that they're that all of these men are really against. Um, And so they think that certain dogma is really getting in the way of what religion actually is. You know, so there's uh, often a romantic
0: uh, Schleiermacher
1: strain as well. You know, religion is our inner moral sense or inner orientation or sense of absolute dependence or what have you. So,
0: right. um,
1: Yeah. So that's really interesting. Um, You know, and we, we talked a little bit about White and Draper in the last, our, our last discussion. So I, I don't, we don't necessarily need to get into the ins and outs, but that's kind of one of the interesting takeaways is that while both men were railing against Christianity in their own way, this was ultimately for what they thought was Christian benefit and not its ultimate um, right demise. But this of course then immediately gets taken up and rewritten by uh, many of the, the more ardent secularists of the day. And so all of the little pro-Christian bits that are still there get, get shorn off. Uh, and right. it's interesting that this happens right at the beginning where uh, both history and the history of science turn into professional university disciplines. And so right there at this moment of history, suddenly though the warfare thesis is something that was born uh, in Victorian, in the Victorian era, it suddenly gets this veneer of of timelessness, you know, of this perennial warfare, precisely because it has all of these historians sort of projecting it backward into history, reading history into its image, right. and sort of rewriting things as they see it. So.
0: Um, right.
2: And Derek, one point of clarification, sorry, yeah. I dropped out there for a second, boys, nope. my oh, no, internet's no been sketchy. Uh, so you mentioned the word secular, and if I miss mm-hmm. this, then just tell me, but, um, Secular has speak be, has become a sort of staple in Christian conservative circles to argue yeah. against all of the things I don't like.
1: <laughs> if it goes yeah.
2: against that, which like sort of presses in on my bubble of Christian thought, that yeah. must be secular. Uh, but w- the, in the book, you actually define you, d- at least attempt a definition. <laughs> of of secular so we can properly understand what it means when we say yeah. this is a secular movement uh, so talk to us just briefly and then I'll let you go Joe uh, but what, yeah. what, do you, what what does secular mean what does it mean that um, the world system is sort of caving in on Christian Orthodoxy and strangling it to death Yeah. Uh, or is it a subtle move away from uh christian presuppositions about metaphysics and ontology etc cetera, et
1: cetera? right right yeah um yeah so in the book i i narrowly i i try to uh offer as few hostages of fortune as possible and so uh i'm using secularism um from a historiographical standpoint and, and so historiography you know the kind of Reflections on how we tell history affecting the content of the history that's being told. And so I specifically use secularism in the deleting theology sense, you know, where these figures who were actually originally religious in their own way or theological or or utilizing these metaphysical ideas are rewritten to kind of become proto skeptics or proto atheists. Um, so for my part, it's a fairly narrow definition, but I, I do pick up a bit on the work of those like Charles Taylor. Um, so yes, secularism can be seen as a movement of uh, uh, Christianity away from kind of the central uh power of culture. It can be seen as a decline in attendance. Um, but what ta- the, the thing that Taylor is most interested in is what he t- he calls secular free. And that's really the a change in the entire modality of how belief even functions, right? Uh, and in, in that way, even the most zealous Christians today are secular, uh, because we all see Christianity as a, ch- a, a choice amongst a tableau of other choices. If for many, the absolutely right one with, you know, no questions about it, but it is seen you know, we are mentally able to step into the shoes of a Buddhist and see what they're seeing, so to speak, even if it's never an option we would see ourselves as taking. Uh, and so in that, I use secularism in that sense, it's uh, sort of a, a shift in the entire <laughs> worldview, I suppose, in how beliefs function at all. Um, and Taylor has the great quote of, you know, belief is quite different today than it was in the year 1500 um yeah. because all of our, all of our beliefs are are what he says are fragilized they're all they all have the ability to be confronted by other beliefs that have even if we don't give them any plausibility they exist as an alternative set of choices um, so i i really just i use a secularism uh, like i said very narrowly in the sense of rewriting history in order to kind of bracket the Christian, theological, religious, metaphysical components from how we're retelling uh, that, that story.
0: Um, and on occasion,
1: I'll use it in, in the broader sense of how <clears throat> kind of the modality of belief itself has altered mm-hmm. in order to, before atheism even comes on the scene, something had to make it possible. And that's, you know, that's what Joseph's work, I think, is, is, is all about and extremely helpful um and so i'm gesturing towards that in a way that that joseph has developed a lot more um uh in the sense of kind of the background conditions that have changed yep. in order to make you know atheism plausible in order to make right uh, a society without god plausible so to speak
0: yeah maybe as a way of um uh drawing to a, drawing to a conclusion mm-hmm. here uh, 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 that you also have uh, if we had more time I would love to talk about uh, the reception yeah. of Darwin perhaps one thing we yeah. perhaps that's a, worth an episode in itself was just to talk uh, yeah. another, maybe we do for another episode is just talk about the range of Christian receptions to Darwin because that's such yeah. a controversial one and it's helpful and interesting to see how different Christians in different rhetorical contexts, have had what their what their kind of knee-jerk reaction to the to the introduction of darwin is and, and of course your material i could go on all day that you know the notion that darwin could be read as uh the last great natural theology or as a theodicy yeah. you know that stuff yeah. is so uh that's that stuff is uh, really really interesting but, but but maybe we'll end on a practical note rather and just say you know uh Every project is motivated by things, and uh, you know they're part of. It's part of one's story to 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 put. Is uh, 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 you don't have a lot of gray hair, uh, which means that to have <laughs> written this by your age means you're a little obsessed, uh, <laughs> yes, which means yeah, it has yeah. to play into your story somehow. So tell us. Uh, I wonder if it's worth asking. What are the what are the deeper motivations behind interest in this subject, and what? uh, yeah. uh if, if you and if you were talking to a young christian who's having a you know an intellectual sort of sort of crisis of faith or something like that or even or even yeah. uh, you know about the about their faith and religion they feel that tension what do you how does this you think help them uh, orient yeah. them within a larger you know uh, uh, christian intellectual project yeah so definitely
1: yeah, yeah. um yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question. And yes, I am obsessed with it. It absolutely, it, it definitely touches something very um, precious to me, very central to me. Um, I suppose the best way to summarize is it is I wrote this uh, for in seminary. I can't remember exactly what the class was, but it was this very involved metaphysical paper. I was really proud of it. Uh, and, and my teacher, wonderful man, um, you know, extremely learned. He just, he kind of looked at me and he said, so what? And that's always really stuck with me. The, the, the so what question, you know, what is theology? What is a theological answer? And that, where does that touch down for us today? Um, There's a friend, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, who was a church historian, Franz Overbeck, and he, he posed this thing called what has been called the meta theological dilemma. And the idea is that there in fact, there are no such thing as theological answers, he says, because theology can always be reduced to some more basic discipline like anthropology or psychology or whatever. Mm. And I think that that is a danger that a lot of Christians have not tackled head on today, because I think we tend to assume that theology has its own provenance because, you know, we're either running in our own circles or we're doing our own projects. Um, but for me today, that that sort of resonated is what am I doing as a theologian? I mean, I'm not making money; like it's not a <laughs> public <laughs> discipline. You know what what is it that that theology is? What does theology do? What is it answering? Um, and part of this project, then for me, is really looking again. Uh, we were just talking about secularism, kind of the conditions that are prior to belief or disbelief that really Mm. I think lend plausibility structures to that and a lot of my work has really deconstructed the idea of theology as its own little category kind of floating off not doing anything like you were saying with philosophy I mean philosophy and theology you go back far enough and that line starts to become fairly blurry and certainly organized in different ways than we tend to do it today the same with art and, and what art is, you know, that was partially a theological category. You know, John Milbank opens his book, Theology and Social Theory, with this great line, you know, once there was no secular. And uh, it's been repeated again and again, you know, uh, in the Blackwell Companion to Christian Ethics, Stanley Hauerwas opens and he says, once there was no Christian ethics. Because Christian ethics is a a university discipline classification, you know, we got along with different ways of organizing the entire world that were theologically and religiously saturated, I suppose to use that term and so for me. My project right now, uh, as important as debunking these myths are in and of themselves, it's really the long game. Here is I, I really want to deconstruct, or at least understand why atheism and secularism became plausible and why it affects me uh, the way we it, it, the way it affects me. You know, we've created a culture in which belief and theology don't seem to have a place anymore, and so I'm trying to understand, I guess, how that happened and what what it means really to do theology today, you know, and I think yeah. part of that deconstruction is really saying, look, you know, anthropology and psychology, you know, you again, you go back far enough, and they're arm in arm with theology, if not theology, right. full stop. So yeah, uh, for me, it's, it's really important, because I think so much of apologetics today is, to me, unfortunately, I think it gives the game away before it even starts. Because mm. I think the best apologetic is really a full-throated, you know, dogmatic approach. But we just we don't give the space to that. So my deconstruction is really sort of, I think, calling some of our categories into account. You know, mm. um, what, yeah. why, why do we, uh, you know, say a scientist doesn't have anything to do with theology. You know, Isaac Newton would have balked at that. You know, you go back far enough. So that's that's the kind of the 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 nutshell of of the game that I'm yeah. playing at least is is just a, a real deconstruction of some of the presuppositions that I think give the game away before we yeah. even start playing.
2: So. Yeah. And I mean this is just this is just what it means to be a person that
1: uh
2: has a holistic view of all of the cosmos uh and we could and joe and i are really trying to answer some of your questions with this project pilgrim faith yeah Uh, Yeah. we're we're really trying to understand the phenomenon of modernity uh and like why we're all and you could get into a million different things but you mentioned money and so i'll just talk about that one very briefly and then i want to ask you one closing question uh, but it seems like that we have set up a uh, system in which specialization is rewarded with with with, with benjamins. Uh, yeah. So if, if you become a specialized uh, professor of X doesn't matter, right. uh, then that becomes the narrow field upon which you embark to get tenureship and then receive your benefits and live your life and raise your kids. But that really does prevent you from uh, reaching outside of that stream of study and grabbing a hold of all of these other things and integrating yeah. them in order to live a well uh, adjusted life in right. light of all of the things like uh, you know you you get an auto mechanic that tinkers with bolts and nuts and oil and gas mm-hmm. what do they know about birds uh mm-hmm. yeah. wh- and why do they care about birds they don't care about birds for the most part because birds mm-hmm. are not going to feed their ch- their child mm-hmm. so uh and that i think is the heart of philosophy the heart of Mm -hmm. philosophy is really just uh under looking around and going oh everything sort of has a structure and if i can operate well within this structure within these patterns Mm -hmm. uh, and if i can understand enough of it then i can live a pretty good life that has meaning uh, because now i have a responsibility to all of these different uh Things that are making connection with me in reality uh, yeah. and part of doing that is doing what you're doing and that's deconstructing some of the myths to open up the gaze of the modern man to say mm. when i talk about pulling blood out of a needle and putting it into a, a vial to test it that's actually not divorced from mars <laughs> uh, right like the, right. there's a connection to be made there yeah. and uh yeah. this is this is why I think that your book is important. You're an important man. I appreciate your mind, brother. So keep going. Uh, and if Joe doesn't have anything, I'll ask one last question no, and ahead. we'll sort of close off on that. So, um, because we want the Derek Petersons of the world to the the tri- we want your tribe to increase, brother. Uh, yeah. What? What do you have planned for the future? What are you working on? Where are you going with the project? What can we expect, yeah. if anything? And if nothing, then you've already given us plenty to, to <laughs> sort of munch on now. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, originally, um, I, like I said, uh, Joe, Joe and I have a lot of overlap in our interests, uh, too. Like I just said, some of my end game is, is really atheism. Um, and so, a lot of the self fashioning narratives of how atheism presents itself to itself and and to others. I originally planned to have in the book, but uh, everything was just growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, And so hopefully that will turn into a sequel of sorts to this book. So that's in its early gestation phases. Um, And uh, I I also hope to write maybe a companion volume uh, if it doesn't fit into the sequel. Uh, Just kind of looking at uh history and Christianity in the 20th century and some of the historians that uh, I, I talk about in this book, maybe in a little more detail, um, I just don't find that that's an area that Christians know a lot about. And that's really unfortunate because people like Herbert Butterfield and R.G. Collingwood you know, they they have really, uh, I think, given a lot of resources to Christians that just aren't being utilized, unfortunately, you know, um, and I think there's just some really interesting stories to tell there, too, because at the end of the day, um, one of the takeaways that, unfortunately, I don't think I emphasize in my book well enough is that the the real trouble for Christians has never really been science. It's been the history. It's, it's the, the history disciplines. Uh, and and sometimes the humanities. And uh, uh, I think that we need to pay closer attention to how they have operated through history, because I think that that's where some of the the real damage has come. You know, like my my entire book is really dedicated to showing that the science versus religion was, uh, you know, it it became a thing because it was written uh, into the histories that were presenting the sciences. So, uh, yeah, so that's, that's kind of uh, in brief, that's, that's, uh the short short and long-term goals here uh i have a few other books i'd love to write so we'll we'll see we'll see what's going on with them but um yeah yeah that's uh you know i I hope people read this book and i hope uh there's room for a sequel in the future
0: yeah
2: well may the may the the songs of the muses penetrate your soul brother and call out (laughs) of
1: you your genius
2: thank you very much So, All right, guys. Well, thank you so much, uh, Derek. We appreciate it. Um, Joe will have this episode up soon, and we will link to your book. Uh, I think everybody should read it. And I I was telling, we were talking beforehand, I would love to have this uh, reformatted into like a Mm. textbook for science classes. That would just be perfect. Um, But one can hope for all things uh but the reality is a little more difficult but uh head over to yeah right Uh, we'll, we'll link to Derek's book in the YouTube video and in the Facebook page, which is Pilgrim Faith Podcast. You guys can join the conversation over there. Derek is part of the group. If you have any questions, I'm sure he'll abandon his responsibility and answer you immediately. (laughs) Uh, uh, You can also head over to Davenant Institute's, uh, YouTube page and check out all of our previous episodes, including the one with Derek, uh, prior to the publication of the book. Uh, but until then, Joe, love you, brother.
0: Love you too, man.
2: Derek, thank you so much. And we'll see you guys soon.
1: Sounds good. See you later.